A couple years ago, the Research Council published a report on Michigan's urban-rural divide and found not much of one, at least by the numbers. The council looked at dozens of data points, comparing everything from poverty to housing to crime and beyond. And as we put it in the conclusion, the number of statistics wherein the differences between people in geographic areas was stark are few. Today, we'll talk about how that applies to public health and, yes, the coronavirus. This is Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. Nancy Derringer, Communications Director for the Research Council, and in this podcast, we look at Michigan through a policy lens. Our discussions here are informed by our 104 years of experience doing nonpartisan, fact-based research on policy issues. We hope this podcast will serve as another way for the public to access our work, which is, as always, free and available to all at our website, crcmich.org. My guest today is Tim Mischling, our health policy expert. So Tim, uh, since we're not talking about a specific new blog or research report today, let's start with defining a medical term most people have probably heard lately, but may not understand what it means. Comorbidities. In simple terms, comorbidity is just the presence of more than one disorder in the same person. So, for instance, if you're thinking about mental health, we might find people that have both social anxiety disorder and a major depressive disorder. So they're said to have those comorbid anxiety and depressive disorders. Um, This can affect the way we think about risk in epidemiology, and it can also affect clinical practice either for the better or for the worse. So, for instance... Um, A lot of diabetic patients undergo regular examinations, and so they might be more likely to get a diagnosis of retinal disease, such as age-related macular retinopathy, Um, and so that can help their prognosis, but it can also complicate things. So if I'm hearing you right, um, and if I understand my own sense of what this means, a comorbidity is an existing medical condition that can make a person more susceptible to another one. Um, I'm thinking of, you mentioned diabetes, and I I believe that diabetes is linked to um, heart disease, that the diabetics are more likely to have heart disease. I mean, that doesn't mean they'll absolutely get it, they're just more likely, and so on. So let's talk about the comorbidities at work with COVID-19. Now, we're going to keep in mind that this is a brand new illness and we don't know everything yet. In fact, we don't even know all that much yet. We're learning more every day. But one of the things we do know is that COVID is hitting African-Americans, particularly in Michigan, particularly hard. Are there any theories about why that is? Yeah, there are a lot of theories about why that is, and it's actually not that surprising. Um, So when you think about comorbidities, there are times where there's no etiological association and just the diseases occur by chance, Uh, but there could also be direct causation between comorbid diseases or those things can be due to associated risk factors. So for instance, you mentioned heart disease and diabetes, and there are lifestyle 
uh, factors that can affect the development of both of those diseases, such as a person's diet or level of physical activity or the amount of stress they're under, uh, their sleeping conditions. There are lots of things that go together. And so when we look at COVID-19, at least, you know, there are a lot of uncertainties still, but from initial studies, it seems like some of the things you would expect are proving true, that age is an important risk factor for just about every disease, um, that people with diabetes are more susceptible uh, to adverse events with infectious diseases, that people with existing lung problems or heart problems may be at higher risk. Um, and, and those things are, are playing out and seem to be true. So to get to your question about the African-American population, um, it's pretty well known that in, in Detroit, the, um, the black population has high rates of heart disease, uh, high rates of diabetes, and other health risks that have put them at greater risk uh, for COVID-19. And we've seen that play out in the mortality rates subsequently. Okay. So let's bring this around to rural Michigan, which is uh, where the disease is, is just starting to get a foothold and spread. What are the risk factors that rural Michigan has in common with Detroit? These are two very different regions. Um, one is um, almost overwhelmingly white. The other, at least in Detroit, is 80-some percent black. Um, other than that enormous difference, what do they have in common? Yeah, it, it might surprise some people, but there are a lot more things in common between rural Michigan and Detroit than there are different. And obviously, there's the one glaring difference that you pointed out. And I think it's worth mentioning that the scientific literature is very clear that while race is a social construct and not a biological one, that the consequences of the social and economic experiences of people of different races do have a very clear impact on people's health. But there are other factors independent of race that also affect people's health, like their income and education level. And rural Michigan and Detroit are both, tend, they both tend to be poorer than the state of Michigan as a whole. Uh, people have lower levels of educational attainment in those areas. We also, in places like rural Michigan, as in Detroit, see a high prevalence of various conditions that we've talked about, like diabetes and heart disease. We see uh, high rates of disability, and we have a very old population uh, in northern Michigan in particular. So all of these things are major risk factors for COVID-19. So... A couple of weeks ago, you wrote a blog saying that all of Michigan is at risk for this disease. This is, um, and I think we all know the the narrative so far for COVID and coronavirus in Michigan. Um, it kind of gained its um, it gained its footing in Southeast Michigan uh, for a variety of reasons that we could do a whole new three hour podcast about, but we're not going to. Um, but then it began to spread uh, because people. People move and um, people travel, and you know there were all sorts of things that uh, that may have affected that. But it's it's inexorably, slowly but inexorably spreading throughout the state from uh, the lower peninsula to the upper peninsula, 
And it's not having a different effect upstate than it is downstate. I mean, people are are getting very sick. Some people are dying. So, you know, obviously a virus doesn't care which body it invades. And people outside of urban centers certainly have fewer opportunities to be in dense groups of people than they might here in Detroit. But that said, we are an aging state overall, and no region in the state is older than the Northeast uh, Lower Peninsula, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, when I wrote the blog a few weeks ago, we didn't see that many cases outstate. And at this point, uh, there's a major surge in Grand Rapids and Alpena in that Northeastern area you're talking about had, had its own surge of cases and so these are things that are that are expected. Um, I think the idea that the virus is just a Southeast Michigan problem or just a Detroit problem is kind of silly, because if you look um, back to something that I, I referenced in that blog, the Social Vulnerability Index, um, it was predicted that those counties in northern Michigan are more vulnerable than some of Detroit's surrounding counties like Oakland or, or Washtenaw. Um, and you're also, you know, we do have a lot of nursing homes, older population in northern Michigan, but that's not the only risk factor uh, for adverse outcomes. Uh, hospitals don't have the capacity uh, the way they do in southeast Michigan to care for people. And so lack of access to healthcare could be a major problem uh, for people if they do have a serious outbreak in their area. And beyond that, there are those social determinants of health that I was mentioning that can really affect people's health overall uh, throughout their lives. And so if I were in one of those rural counties, yeah, you may be spread out from your neighbors, but if you're going to church on Sundays or if you've got one sort of legacy industry or one factory in town and everyone's going to work there, that's enough to, to get people sick. And we've seen that in rural states like South Dakota and rural parts of the country. And so there are multiple models now predicting that even though the impact of COVID-19 is being felt later in rural areas, it's probably going to hit them proportionally even harder than it has some of the major cities. Right. Um, the case in South Dakota, I think you're talking about the uh, the meat packing plants, correct? Correct. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, there's there's nothing about living um, out in the uh, out in the sticks and uh, getting lots of fresh air and and so forth that makes you immune to this at all. Are there yeah, are there know, any if other? Think, if if you think about, I'm sorry to interrupt you. If you think about you know, some of our towns in northern Michigan, where the major source of jobs is a state prison, we've had huge outbreaks in our incarcerated populations in the state. And so if everyone's working there in the region, that's an easy way for things to spread out. I don't want to single out, obviously, corrections institutions. The same could be said for a hospital or, like I said, for a church or, or anything Yeah, else. but I mean, but but corrections is, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, in jails and prisons, we've seen this. Um, this is spread like wildfire. So are there any other particular risk factors that you think deserve attention here? Yeah, so we've talked about some of the biological risk factors, which of course are still not totally understand, understood. We, we need time to develop information since this is a novel virus, uh, some things will become clearer over time. And we know about social determinants of health, 
But there's also, I think, a real risk of bad information. And maybe I'm biased working, as both of us do, for you know, a fact-based research institution. But there's this co-occurring pandemic along with the, the viral pandemic that we're talking about, which people have called an infodemic, that there's a lot of bad information out there. And when people read bad information and that alters their behavior in ways that put them more at risk, uh, that can be very dangerous. And so realizing that there are a lot of uncertainties that focusing on things like case fatality rates, which really you don't have a good idea about until after a pandemic's over, um, focusing on advice from people who are not medical professionals or even people who are medical professionals but are not epidemiologists or are not infectious disease experts or you know, listening to medical professionals about policy when they may have no training in public policy or economics, these things can be really dangerous. And so I think it's important for people to step back and make sure that they're getting the most accurate information they can. And if you hear something that fits a preconceived narrative or is just telling you what you want to believe, um, look and see what the the body at large of experts is saying, not just the one person that's telling you what you want to hear. Another report the Research Council did in 2018, which you wrote, was about public health spending in Michigan, which is not great, among the lowest per capita in the country. Now, by public health, we should probably say that we're talking about uh, not necessarily the kind of health care where an individual patient goes to a doctor or several other patients go to doctors, but the sort of benign oversight that looks to improve everyone's health, Um, clean water, clean air, um, you know, disease surveillance, this sort of thing. Um, How could more investment in public health help us get through this pandemic, or it's probably too late for this pandemic, let's just say the next pandemic? Well, it's never too late. Uh, And in terms of this pandemic, if we want to return to some sort of normalcy, whatever the new normal looks like coming out of this pandemic, it's going to require some activities such as contact tracing, uh, testing, and other kinds of screening and and ongoing monitoring of the the COVID-19 disease. Uh, And we can't do that without a public health workforce. And what we're seeing in a lot of states is a patchwork response because those states don't have the public health resources. It's not uniquely Michigan. Um, And we have, you know, public health funding issues at the federal level too. So we have our existing public health employees who are working hard and doing their best, but we're having to pull in volunteers, which could be public health graduate students or retirees or out-of-work school nurses and social workers getting on-the-fly public health training to some of these things like contact tracing, which I guess I should explain is uh, when you find that someone is positive for the disease, you want to get in touch with the people that they may have come in contact with uh, to monitor those people for symptoms, to see if they have the disease. If they do, then you would impose uh, most likely quarantine or some sort of isolation. Uh, And this isn't something that you can just learn how to do over a weekend. It it takes a lot of background knowledge in 
knowing how to be sensitive to people when you're interviewing them and understanding the right way to probe uh, for answers and, and knowing what you need to know as well as being able to answer questions about the infection and virus and, and other things for that person. So it's, it's something that we have need of and we're working rapidly to scale up. But if we had a public health workforce in place, uh, it wouldn't have been as much of an issue. And quite frankly, while all respect is due to our frontline healthcare heroes, uh, we immediately recognized that the healthcare sector was going to be hit uh, and tried to figure out how to manage healthcare capacity. But weeks before, when we knew a pandemic was coming, I didn't see a single news article talking about our capacity of epidemiologists in our local and state health departments. And that hmm. lack of understanding on the part of the public of the important role of public health as an ongoing thing, uh, not only when there are pandemics, but throughout time, because public health is also what's intervening to encourage health and wellness and monitor chronic chronic diseases. So with a lack of public health, you see a greater prevalence of heart disease, of diabetes, COPD, and you name it. And these things have put states like Michigan in particular at greater risk of having a negative experience with the with the pandemic. Not that there's a positive experience, of course, but we've been hit hard because we're a sick state, and we're a sick state because we don't invest in public health. Quite frankly, hmm. interesting. Okay, anything else you'd like to add before we wrap? Um, I want to read a quote from that 2018 report that you you mentioned. Okay, go ahead. Epidemics remain an ever-present threat to human health and safety. Infectious diseases are now emerging in greater numbers and spreading more quickly than at any time in human history. Advances in mobility mean that an epidemic in one part of the world is just a few hours of travel away from threatening other parts of the globe. A pandemic would be a significant threat to human health that requires robust public health systems and emergency planning and preparedness to manage. So that's a quote from our 2018 report. And if anyone tells you no one could have foreseen that this would happen, they're wrong. <laughs> you know, um, one of the things that I did when this was just getting ramped up is um, I rewatched uh, Contagion, which is the movie from, I think it's 2011 or 2010, Steven Soderbergh movie that is about, it's a fiction, um, but it's about a, a pandemic, a fictional pandemic that hits the world. And um, I was really struck by all of the things that, uh, that were happening seemed so, I mean, we were going through the same thing and others are saying, wow, it's almost like they could foresee this thing. And it's like, no, what, this is just standard operating procedure in this sort of situation. This is public health, best practice, social distancing, you know, wear a mask, um, you know, all the things that we're chafing at right now. Um, but that's just, you know, that's, that's what we were supposed to, that's what we were supposed to do. So exactly. And you can have the best training and the best uh, plans. But to look at the medical side, if you've got one doctor and they have thousands of patients, things are going to suffer. And we yeah. see that with their public health workforce, that even understanding how these things happen and having them play out the way that they were predicted, um, you still need the capacity there to engage with those best practices. Exactly. So, okay. Well, thank you so much, Tim. It was great talking to you. Um, as we like to say to one another these days, um, stay well, stay safe, and uh, we'll meet again one of these days. <laughs> so.
Don't know where, don't know when. Yeah, exactly. Okay, take care. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that will do it for this edition of Facts Matter, the Citizens Research Council of Michigan podcast. Remember, the council operates as a public resource, and all of our papers, along with blogs, op-eds, and other resources, are available for download on our website, crcmich.org. We operate as a nonprofit, thanks to Michigan's corporations, foundations, and generous individuals like you. If you'd like to make a donation, go to our website, crcmich.org, and click the Get Involved tab on the homepage. We also welcome feedback, which you can send via email to crcmich at crcmich.org. I'm Nancy Derringer, and until next time, I leave you with this observation by our founding president, Lent Upson. The right to criticize government is also an obligation to know what you're talking about.